could a rethink of DEFRA's phase-out of the Badger calls be on the way? New farming minister Mark Spencer certainly seemed to hint it was a possibility in an exclusive interview with me, Abby Kay, Farmers Guardian's head of news at Conservative Party conference this week. The only way that other countries have eradicated TB is to take out that sponge of, of TB in the, in the natural population. And unfortunately, badgers are part of that problem. We'll hear more from Mark Spencer later on in the podcast, when he will talk about which regulations he wants to strip away to help farmers get on, what the future of the environmental and management scheme is, and whether he trusts his boss, new DEFRA Secretary Ranil Jayawardena, on the contentious issue of trade. There is no doubt that this year's gathering of the Conservative Party faithful in Birmingham this year felt different to the conferences gone by. Prime Minister Liz Truss faced a bruising week after being forced into a humiliating U-turn on her tax plans by backbenchers in a rebellious mood. There was even wine fuel talk in the hotel lobby of ousting her, though it's not yet clear how that could happen under party rules which prevent a new leader being removed in their first year. But new DEFRA Secretary Raniel Jayawardena has not been perturbed by threats of a coup and has made clear he was keen to move the department on from a focus on regulation to a focus on economic growth. I'm focused on three things uh, at DEFRA, EFG, uh, you might have heard of Therese Coffey's ABCD, this is my EFG, and one of them is environment, the second is food, and the third is growth, and I think all three go together. Um, there are ways that we can not only make food a priority, but translate that into economic growth and prosperity for every corner of our United Kingdom, and I think that's this government's big agenda, which is to make sure that people feel prosperity wherever they live in this country. Mr Jayawardena was also keen to rebuff suggestions that the new environmental land management scheme would be scrapped after two weeks of fevered speculation. The rumours were sparked by the Chancellor's growth plan, published alongside his mini-budget, which said the new DEFRA team would be undertaking a rapid review of all agricultural policies. Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Select Committee Chair Sir Robert Goodwill gave his views on the matter. What do you think of the news that the new DEFRA team is reviewing its agricultural policies? Well, I think um, it's important that it should always keep these things under review. And indeed, uh, my select committee is looking at, uh, first of all, the implementation of the ELM scheme to see if whether, you know, we are moving in the right direction. I mean, it's absolutely, you know, right that we should look at greening the agricultural industry. We should look at how we can uh, procure public goods as well as, you know, supporting farmers. But I think particularly as, as maybe we've lost some time during the pandemic, maybe some of the research that needs to be um, completed. But also I think we, we're now much more aware of food security and the fact that, you know, should we, we be rewilding vast tracts of good agricultural land? Should we be building solar farms on, on, on land or, or planting forestry when actually, you know, we've seen that, that, you know, food is expensive in the shops because, you know, we can no longer rely on buying it somewhere else in the world. And indeed, if we do buy it somewhere else in the world, what are the environmental impacts of that looking at deforestation in places like Brazil, for example? So I think it's important that they always keep this thing under review. We've got a new ministerial team. I think it's a good opportunity to look again at, at, at whether we actually moving in the right direction in every single area. But I, I can't see any major changes, but you never know. What changes would you like to see then? Do you have any small ones? You say you don't want major ones? Um, well, I... I, I'm, one of my concerns is that the ELM scheme is all about incentivising farmers to do additional things, you know, planting trees, establishing hedges, soil management, sustainable farming, etc. But in, in large tracts of England, 
we have land actually that doesn't we don't want to change. And my constituency includes the majority of the North Yorkshire Moors National Park. And we actually want farmers to do absolutely nothing different to what they're doing at the moment. And I really aren't convinced that the, the ELM scheme is actually geared up to supporting those parts of the country where the farmers are already doing what we want them to do. They're already preserving and conserving the environment. So I think it's important that we maybe look at that, at how we can not only incentivise you know, arable farmers like me to plant a few more hedges and trees and, and all that other stuff, but also looking at where we really don't want any changes at all, how we can support farmers, often in the most marginal uh, parts of the country, to, to stay on the land and keep doing what they've been doing for generations. Do you think food security is being taken more seriously by this government than the last one? I, I, I think what's happened in Ukraine has concentrated people's attention. Uh, you know, the fact that, you know, cooking oil prices has gone through the roof. We, you know, we can't um, rely on sunflower oil. We, use it. we need more rapeseed oil. The price of wheat has gone up substantially. The price of fertiliser has gone up substantially. And of course, you know, you really can't produce large volumes of food without a decent supply of fertiliser. It's very worrying that the two plants here in the UK, one is shut already and one, uh, there's a big question mark over it. That, that's a million tonnes of ammonium nitrate that we've been used to having uh, on our doorstep. And of course, course you know the world fertilizer market is is also very um, fragile to say the least so you know I, I think that what's happened in Ukraine has I think made us realize that that maybe not you know for the first time since the second world war I think that we've started to really think you know can we produce more food from our own resources and because of that you know whether some of the environmental schemes that people are very keen to engage in in some cases maybe you know we need to make sure that we can still keep ourselves fed uh, as well as deliver those environmental objectives when we last spoke it was during the conservative leadership campaign and you supported rishi sunak you mentioned that you were a little bit concerned about the fact that liz trust wouldn't be a friend to farmers on the trade issue is that something that you're still concerned about and has Ronnie ojai as appointment assuage those concerns or exacerbated them? Well, I think our concern in the committee was that the Australian trade deal had been sort of rushed through without the, the process, uh, the crag process as it's called, to enable us to fully understand some of the implications and to you know, hold ministers to account. And, and I think that, that deal itself maybe didn't pose a massive threat to the UK. You know, we, we've always been importing lamb in, in particular from the other side of the world. We're not the Australian's primary market. And indeed, you know, things like Scotch whisky produced from, you know, British malting barley is a great export to Australia. And I think that did set a precedent, which I hope won't be repeated if we're looking at trade deals with places like the United States. Um, it appears from... Um, uh, Liz Truss's visit to the UN in New York that maybe the UN, UN, US deal won't be concluded as quickly as some people had hoped but I, I do hope that we will be able to scrutinise these deals in particular I mean, we're all in favour of competition but it has to be fair competition not uh, goods produced either with subsidies we don't get or more importantly under environmental or animal welfare conditions that would be illegal in this country that's not fair competition we shouldn't ex expect farmers to take that on but but you know free, free trade as a rule benefits both of those you know, participants and there's great opportunities around the world for top quality British food, some of our manufactured products where we have you know, um, 
expats, you know, who, who will want to, you know, purchase some of the commodities that, you know, we have on our supermarket shelves here at lower prices. And of course, the benefit to uh, British consumers of buying things like wine, which we don't produce in large quantities here, at reduced prices, which means they'll have more money maybe to spend on a treat, you know, they'll buy a steak instead of a burger, which is good news for farmers. Do you trust the Prime Minister on this issue, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, she, she's... Um, you know, she, she's a woman who, who, you know, as we've seen from recent uh, announcement, you know, she, she's, she does what she says she's going to do. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we, outside the European Union, we do have opportunities to strike trade deals which will benefit farmers. You know, there are countries like, for example, Singapore, where they have no agriculture to speak of at all. So, you know, the, the opportunities in some of those places, opportunities for, you know, some of the British cheeses, and Wensleydale's cheese is very close to my heart, produced in Yorkshire. You know, there, there are people around the world, if they can buy our top value products without the barrier of a tariff uh, at more competitive prices, that should give tremendous opportunities for British farmers and British exporters to see the world as their oyster. And finally, what's the mood like at conference this year? Uh, I think the mood is a little bit mixed, it has to be said. You know, um, many were predicting that with a new Prime Minister we'd have a bit of a sort of a, a, a bounce, we'd have a little bit of a honeymoon. Uh, but because of um, some of the... Um, I mean, I mean the, the, the central part of the, ch- the announcement from the Chancellor was, you know, £60 billion to help households and businesses with their energy bills. That should have been good news. But that got mixed up with the, uh, the now reversed decision on the top rate of tax... Uh, and also the bankers' bonuses, which um, I, I think Labour have sought to exploit. I mean, actually, I suspect that if we if we scrap the cap on bankers' bonuses, that would mean more bankers paying tax here in the UK. But you know, the, the politics is a funny thing, and, and if you once you steal the agenda, then it's very difficult to backtrack on that. So you know, I, I think Liz Truss is you know made a good start in terms of helping people with their fuel bills and I think what we need to know is get the message across that we are on their side and and, and, and I think you know she's built a, a team of ministers uh, who I believe will be very keen to um, make the case that we are competent and able to carry on not just until the election but after the next general election which I expect will be in a couple of years time. So she's still going to be here next October? I, I think so, yes. I mean, you know, we, we can't be changing our Prime Minister every 10 minutes, can we, really? And, and, and you know, she, she beat Rishi fair and square. She's done what she said she was going to do, so you can't accuse her of, of saying one thing and doing another. And, and I think now we need to build on um, the tremendous strengths of the British economy. You know, we have record low levels of unemployment in this country. We have an economy which is well-placed to take for the advantage of, for example, new modern technologies to address climate change. We've been looking at hydrogen technology in the, in the conference exhibition area today, looking at opportunities for things like sustainable aviation, new nuclear power plants. So, you know, I think there are tremendous opportunities and this country is still seen as a safe place to invest, a good place to come and live and work. And I think, you know, we, we need to look at the positives rather than maybe some of the negatives which came out of the, the autumn uh, fiscal event, as I think they called it. New farming minister Mark Spencer is also optimistic about the future of the Conservative Party, particularly in rural areas. In this wide-ranging interview, he explains why. Can you tell us about the Agriculture Policy Review? Is it going to tweak Elm or is it going to be a more fundamental overhaul? So I think it's a, it's a tweak. I, I, I think these things only work and will only work if they're accessible, if they're easy to understand, if they're not bureaucratic and farmers feel as though they, they understand what they're 
what we're trying to achieve. And I personally came to the view that the, the scheme as it was presented was going to be a little bit too over-bureaucratic and not as well connected to the real world to farming practices. And I think we've just got to make it relevant to farmers and make sure that they're engaged in it because if we miss this moment, as basic payments come down and as the environmental schemes kick in, with global wheat prices at, you know, 250, 300 pounds a tonne, I'm hearing farmers say, you know what, I don't need the hassle, frankly. I don't need the, I don't need the, the trouble of the bureaucracy that you're offering me. I may as well plough up to the hedge stumps and, you know, stuff the interference. I'll just farm on my own. And I think that would be a travesty for the environment. It would be a travesty for those farms because actually I think there's huge benefit in some of the environmental schemes from a, from a productivity point of view and from uh, a farming practice point of view. You know, and, and that's going to take a bit of selling and for people to understand how some of these practices, which actually are quite old-fashioned in many ways, so probably things that my grandfather used to do, uh, can actually benefit soil qualities and productivity in terms of generating our own insecticides in the form of ladybirds and lacewings and other insects. What does that mean in practice, though? Does it mean you're going to make um, the sustainable farming incentive less prescriptive or reduce the number of standards? What, what does it actually mean? So I think I'm, clearly the review is ongoing, so uh, what, I, what I mustn't do is jump the gun here. But I think what it actually means in practice is, as a farmer, do I understand what the scheme is about? How does that fit into my farming practice? And what benefits can I, can I bring to my own business uh, in terms of the scheme? So some of the stuff I'm already doing... Can I, can I weave that into or, or tweak it a little bit so that it, it has an environmental benefit, also an economic benefit to me, and is not going to result in 10 RPA officers turning up on a, on a monthly basis to inspect I've uh, not gone 0.5 metres too short or too long. Are any of the three ELM schemes more vulnerable to change than the others? I'm hearing landscape recovery is really up for debate. So I think, I, mean, I don't even like that phrase, landscape recovery. That, that implies that farmers have ruined, uh, ruined nature and uh, ruined the landscape, which, I, which I, well, I just find that ironic. You know, all of these people that talk about uh, the beautiful landscapes of, you know, if you go to North Yorkshire and look at all those beautiful stone walls, they're not there by accident. They're there because farmers have built them to keep sheep in. You know, we should be we should be on the front foot, I think, as an industry and explaining to people that the view that they enjoy is there because of the land management of generations of farmers that have created that beautiful landscape and we should be very proud of that and the food choices they make uh, are are directly consequential to the landscape in which they view so if they want to keep those beautiful stone walls in Yorkshire or those you know beautiful hedgerows on Exmoor then they're gonna have to buy British sheep and, uh, and beef what about the plan for growth? That mentions helping farmers with high input costs. Can you tell us what kind of farm that support will take? Yeah, so I, I mean, clearly fertilisers is the big one, isn't it? You know, and I think uh, CF have got a monopoly position. Uh, I'd, I'd like to put a bit of pressure on to, to CF to, to, to be a bit more supportive of the UK marketplace. Clearly they've shut down their plant in Liverpool. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd hope they might put that on the open market and let someone else buy that if they're not going to run that plant themselves. Uh, they've clearly made the decision to import ammonia, which is going to give us quite a challenge in the UK for CO2. And that has big impacts in the, uh, in the certainly in, in the abattoir and food sector. Uh, we're now having to buy CO2 from, from Holland. Um, you know, I, I'd want them to work with us. So that's, that's clearly one 
input cost. Uh, clearly diesel is another huge input cost to, to farmers as well and uh, we must make sure that we protect the discount of red diesel f- at all costs. What about actual financial support for farmers though? Are you? I'm hearing rumours that there's a possibility you could de-link BPS payments, give farmers a lump sum to tide them over through this inflationary period and then carry on with the arm transition. Is that accurate? Yeah, so I mean I think I think decoupling cross compliance if we're if we're going to drop area payments over seven years clearly that cross compliance will disappear with that system i think decoupling that cross compliance at an early stage is makes common sense um that will be part of the review as to whether we could achieve that i think there's other stuff we could do from a practical point of view to be honest so you know preventing people from cutting hedgerows till the first of september if we could move that to the to the fifteenth of August, just to give people another fortnight. If you're growing, if you're trying to plant barley or oilseed rape, that's a huge advantage to be able to get on and cut those edges from a practical point of view. And I don't think those two weeks would make much of a difference to the nesting season of birds. What about other regulations? And the Secretary of State has talked a lot about how he wants to get out of farmers' way. You've mentioned one there. Is there anything else that you're looking at? So I think I think permitted development rights are, uh, are something worth looking at. You know, why shouldn't you be able to put solar panels on your grain store? without having to go to the planners, uh, why shouldn't you be able to convert a farm building uh, in terms of a farm diversification project if it if it brings extra income and support to that farming business? I think we should look at deregulation in the planning system to, to give farmers a bit more flexibility. What about things like um, closed periods for slurry spreading in nitrate vulnerable zones? Is that something you look at again? So, I mean, I think that is worthy of looking at. So we, we, we do have to have half an eye here on... Uh, leaching into rivers and watercourses and we have a responsibility to try and reduce the amount of leachate that's that's reaching watercourses but by the same token you know I think in the real world we've got to acknowledge that sewage sludge exists it is a thing we've got to find a way of spreading sewage sludge onto land that that has a, a nutritious value to our crops and if we're not spreading it on land then we're piling it up in big heaps somewhere uh, which is the most dangerous to our watercourses, a big heap of it, or uh, spread out on land and, and worked in. So, you know, I think the one thing I hope to do as a minister is bring a bit more real-world practicality to some of the discussions and decisions that are taking place in Whitehall, because I think some of these things look brilliant on a piece of paper or on a computer screen in London, and when they reach the real world, they're often a little bit different. One of the biggest issues for farmers in England is bovine TB and um, they were quite unhappy about the planned phase out of the badger calls because they're quite a useful tool to have in the box when it comes to tackling TB. Will you commit to looking again at that end in the phase out? So I, I think I think we should try and stop the badger call at some point in the future but I think the timescales, um, measuring these things in a, in a, by a calendar rather than by results is the wrong way to do it. I, I think we all want to stop shooting badgers and the way to stop shooting badgers is to eradicate TB. Now I think we need to follow the science here and we need to look at what actually works and I'm I'm afraid that you've come to the conclusion that actually vaccination around areas where TB is spreading to with a cull in the middle of that area where it's very intensive is probably the most practical way of dealing with TB. Now uh, you know, I declare my interest in this. In that, you know, farming in Nottinghamshire, we've got TB spreading across Derbyshire. It, it needs to be stopped and eradicated. And the only way that other countries have eradicated TB is to take out that sponge of of TB in the in the natural population. 
unfortunately badgers are part of that problem um, you can't measure these things by the calendar you have to measure them by results and to put an arbitrary line in the sand and say all culling will stop on this date I, in, in my opinion is a mistake I think what you need to do is say we need to stop culling badgers as soon as physically possible and the way you do that is by eradicating TB your boss, Renil Jayawardena, he was previously sat on the International Trade Committee before he became a minister in the Department for International Trade. And when he was grilling office holders from the NFU and uh, people from Dairy UK, he would often refer to them as protectionists when they said they wanted a level playing field in trade deals. Are you confident that he's going to go out to bat for farmers against the Department for International Trade in these future trade deals with countries like India? I I think we can work together. I genuinely think we can work together and we should explore markets uh, in these trade deals for us to export food. You know, we've got a a fantastic food industry in the United Kingdom and we've got some of the best cheeses in the world, literally. You know, that's a huge benefit to dairy farmers if we can export more cheese to to, uh, other countries via these trade deals. We've got... I think some of the best lamb and beef production anywhere in the world. Uh, we should be very proud of that and try and turn the telescope around and look to export some of this product as much as worry about inferior imports coming in. Because I think we can explain to consumers that you know, if they want to buy Brazilian beef produced from on reclaimed rainforest, shipped around the world with aviation fuel, then they're going to have to live with that conscience that actually, uh, you know, they're, they're not buying lamb from Snowdonia or, or beef off Exmoor or, uh, or from the Derbyshire Peak District. So you think it should be up to consumers what, they, what kind of food they buy as opposed to setting those rules at a government level? So I, I think the government's got a role to play here in making sure that, uh, that there is a fairer playing field. You know, I think talking to, to arable farmers in Nottinghamshire, they're pretty grumpy about not being allowed to use neonicotinoids on their oilseed rape and flea beetle eating the whole crop when we just then buy oilseed rape from Ukraine which is grown with DNX. Uh I think that is you know that just doesn't make any any sense in a uh, in a modern trading system so we, we've got to try and lead the world in animal welfare and in some of this science and we've got to try and take the whole world with us without the detriment to our own uh, food producers but that is a tricky balance to be had and there are lots of people that worry about that to a greater extent than they need to so, so I think the Australia New Zealand trade deal is a very good example of that where actually Australia New Zealand never reached the quota that was available to them when we were members of the EU uh, and suddenly we're worrying about sort of huge imports of uh, uh, New Zealand lamb and Australian beef well if they wanted to flood our market they could have done that when we were members of the EU they, they never chose to and there are other markets in the world available to them as well um, there's plenty of problems we can sell the Australians but we're doing a deal with India now we're trying to and India is a major exporter of products like liquid eggs and it comes from battery hens I mean if there is that threat coming down the line i just put it to you again is your boss the best person to be defending farmers? Don't worry, Ranel understands these things and I think having somebody who's come from a, a Department of International Trade background, he knows how the department operate and uh, that inside knowledge will be of great benefit to us in, in DEFRA. And finally, just what is the mood at Conservative Conference this year? Um, I think it's a little bit surreal, if I'm honest. It's probably the bumpiest I've, I've known it, but... Uh, I think we're still optimistic that we've got the right policies, we've got the right uh, ability to manage the economy and see our way through for rural communities especially. 
so we should have confidence in that confidence in those policies. We just need to make sure that we explain them to the electorate in the right way. Um, but you know, we, we live in pretty challenging times globally. Uh, you know, I can't in, in my in my political lifetime over the last ten years. You know, we, we've had we've had Brexit, we've had a global pandemic. Uh, we've now got a war in on the edge of Europe. These are huge political moments that are shaping and, and manipulating world markets in a way which is pretty challenging to the whole world. A hopeful perspective there from the new farming minister. But there are others who are less optimistic about the future for DEFRA. One of those people is farmer Jamie Blackett, who recently called for the department to be completely scrapped in an article for The Telegraph. Let's find out more. I farm in Dumfries and Galloway and I, I sort of my... my secondary career really uh, is as a journalist and a writer and I've just written uh, a second of of, uh, two books about my farming experiences. The first one was Red Rag to a Bull uh, and the second one that came out in 2018 I think and this one um, that came out this year um, is called Land of Milk and Honey. So I've just been going around book festivals and and doing podcasts and I think that sort of thing to um, to promote that. And um, one of the themes in in my books is very much to try to reduce the amount of bureaucracy in farming. And I think that's perhaps why Jeremy Clarkson asked me to be a, a co-signatory on a on a letter that he wrote earlier this week to the newspapers asking for that to happen, which I then followed up with uh, yesterday uh, with a, an article in the in the Telegraph. Yes, we'll return to the letter that you co-signed with Jeremy Clarkson, but on the piece in the Telegraph, you set out some quite strident views about um, how you think DEFRA should move forward. Do you want to just expand on that a little bit for us? What really annoys farmers is having to duplicate stuff. Uh, you know, you get inspected by civil servants from the the department uh, that we have here in Scotland is different, slightly different from DEFRA, but very, um, pretty much the same sort of idea. Um, and, and, you're, and, you're all, and you probably get also inspected by SEPA in our case, or the Environment Agency in, in England. Um, and um, and then you're increasingly you're you're being inspected um, really much more rigorously often for these various assurance schemes so that you can sell your milk or your beef or whatever it happens to be. And um, in fact, we pay for that through our levies um, and or through our, you know, being membership members of these various schemes. It's not, it doesn't, it's no burden on the, on the taxpayer. And the taxpayer is, is really being ripped off by continuing to pay for a, um, a really a huge infrastructure um government department um to uh which has offices in in all of these towns and uh, employs a lot of people and, and has very very expensive uh, computer systems many of which don't seem to work very well and all, and all of which um are several decades behind the times in in the sort of user friendliness um you know they're, they're really largely duplicating what the quality assurance inspections uh, are doing. And there's no reason why government um, shouldn't uh, look at this really closely and say, well, look, you know, if we, if we tell the assurance schemes what, we, what we're after um, in terms of...
terms of uh, what we want for the, the countryside, um, biodiversity or carbon sequestration or whatever, that a lot of this could be delivered through the markets, through, through, uh, through the private sector, um, rather than have this vast Stalinist bureaucracy that we never had prior to the Second World War. I mean, it was, it was in 1939, 1940, you know, for, for, for obvious reasons, the, the command economy took over. Um, farming wasn't nationalised, but it was, it was, you know, it was very tightly controlled and, um, for, for, you know, for very good reasons. But And then that sort of carried on, really, um, in the post-war era. And then, obviously, once we entered the EU... Uh, with uh, the common agricultural policy, it it intensified. I didn't actually vote for Brexit, but you know those that did were thought they were voting for an end to all of this, this bureaucracy. Uh, but we've still got it, um, and there's no need for it. I mean, it's perfectly possible to to subsidise British agriculture, which I think it, it will still be necessary if if there isn't going to be a level playing field. But you know, through assurance schemes, or you know, by ha- or, or the other way of doing it is to is to have tariffs on goods coming into the country that aren't produced with the same constraints. I'm really asking the government just to think outside the box and say, you do, do they really need DEFRA anymore? I, I would just um, actually just scrap them. Really, I mean, you you need ministry vets. You know, if we had a God forbid another foot and mouth outbreak, and we still got this um, ongoing crisis with. TB that needs to be brought to a conclusion. Um, so you, you know you still need the, the animal health function and possibly one or two other functions. But a lot of these things are already being done by some of these uh, agencies and, and quangos, uh, and, and also by the uh, by these assurance schemes. So you've talked about the idea of having a simple flat rate subsidy that's paid to farmers um, for these yeah. public goods that they're providing. Um, how would that work in practice? Because you've got grassland, for example, is better at sequestering carbon than arable land. So are you talking about having a single um, a single flat rate subsidy across all sectors at all times, or would it be for individual public goods? You'd have a flat rate. You'd have a flat rate um, subsidy. Well, I, I think. Um, I mean, I was always. I mean, I was in the army for twenty years before I came home and farmed and. And it was always drummed into us that you know that to remember the demonic kiss K I S keep it simple, stupid. Um, and I think um, what really depresses me, and I've I've been on various policy committees for farming bodies um, looking at uh, what's being what's being produced, uh, particularly in Scotland actually for um, the follow-on uh, to. Um, you know, the, the subsidy system or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever we have going forward. Um, and what's so depressing is that, you know, they've just basically just um, just delivered more of the same, you know, the Alps thing in, in, in England or, or uh, what they're proposing in Scotland with all, all these various sort of levels and tiers and, you know, it's, it uses a lot of the same language. And, um, and it's just a recipe for more... You know, continuation of the same, lots of lots of civil servants, lots of inspections, lots of uh, you know plans to write and fill in, you know, all, all the rest of it. And, and I think really, uh, um, I mean, what, what what I passionately believe in is that if we, if we are going to, you know, we are actually the EU now. If we are going to make a success of of Brexit, and there are 
opportunities there as well as as well as a number of threats. Um, you know, we've got to really get out there and, and market British produce and have and have some really great British brands. And um, you know, governments could say, well, you know, this we we you know we want to uh, to really get behind selling beef or dairy products or whatever it is around the world. Uh, but we we want we want uh, to to ensure that there is a you know that they're produced sustainably and that actually we can make a, a virtue of that if uh, Scotch beef or Welsh lamb or whatever it happens to be um, ticks lots of green boxes and, and if people buy it they know that that um, all the uh, the water courses have been fenced off so that the rivers aren't being polluted by runoff they, um, they know that um, hedges are being allowed to, to grow with, uh, so there's blossom and fruit <coughs> for the birds um, I, I would argue that, that, that grass lays should, should contain a proportion of uh, clover or plantains or other, other things so, so there's nectar for bees you know, all, all these things are you know, stuff, stuff that a lot of us are doing already but if we, you know, if we just establish a sort of minimum baseline, and the government says, you know, this is what this is what what we want you to do, because, you know, we need we need to preserve our biodiversity, we need to keep we need to improve our water quality, all, all these public goods. Uh, but we recognise that farmers in other in other parts of the world don't have these constraints, uh, and therefore it's not a level playing field. Uh, but we'll we'll just pay you this this flat rate, and that and that will um, you know help to make make up the difference of the, the fact that we are farming more expensively in this country because because we are um, you know we are by and large in a, in a much greener way than they are overseas. I mean, what we don't want to happen is when um, when New Zealand removed their subsidies and, and they took away um, you know all the all the regulation also and just and just get let farmers get on with it and in order to survive on global markets uh, they they trashed their environment i mean they you know they they just farmed every every inch and um and they've had they've since had problems with their rivers and all, all that sort of thing so um you know we don't want to, we don't want that to happen we want to look after our countryside we, and we want british food uh to to be um renowned for for animal welfare and, and you know and, and being farmed in a way that uh, looks after the countryside so what um, what would be a fair rate then you say you want this single flat rate how much would you expect then would it be area based and and what would be a fair figure i don't want to sort of stick a wet finger in the air and come up with a, <laughs> with a figure but um it would have to be arrived at sensibly by you know looking at looking at uh, as i say well you know this sort of level playing field you know if, if um but i mean that is, you know that is a that's a major constraint uh, uh, affects our competitiveness uh, compared to farmers in on the prairies in in um, canada or australia or wherever um and so it's reasonable that we should be compensated for that uh and i think you know people need to to, to look at that approach and it must be kept simple i mean what you know, by having a, the 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 other way of doing it, where you have a sort of menu of you know options and competitive schemes that, that farmers do a lot of a lot of work and then don't get into, 
uh, or like I said, complicated that you need to pay consultants to 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 design it all. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we we don't want to do that. We 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 just keep it keep it simple. And if you if you do that, keep things really simple and, and administer it through through the assurance route rather than through the the civil servant route, then um, there's an opportunity there for government to cut public expenditure uh, without uh, without without actually any any ill effects. Given the current climate, with the, you know the cost of living crisis and government having to bail people out and uh, all the rest of it, that, that you know they should be looking at value for money. And I don't I don't think DEFRA does represent value for money because I think it's uh, it, it does a lot of duplication. So I just want to pick up on this assurance schemes point um, because there are a lot of farmers who aren't actually very keen on assurance schemes at all. You know, they've never delivered a premium like it was promised they would. They're seen as being retailer-led as opposed to farmer-led. Um, so I can imagine that a few of them might be perhaps just as unhappy to have the assurance schemes manage this than DEFRA. How would you respond to that? Well, I think I think there are other things that need to happen in parallel. I, you know, I, think, I think government needs to gain the trust of farmers because because for, for several decades now um, we've been at the mercy of um, very few buyers in, in, in many sectors particularly in the beef sector beef and lamb sectors um, you know there needs there needs to be a lot more competition uh, in the supply chain I think I think there is there is quite so it does seem to be I mean having moved from beef to dairy it struck me that it does seem to be a lot more competition in the uh, in the dairy sector, but um, but it, but it, we're all slightly at the mercy of, of supermarkets where it all ends up, and um, so I think you know it's, the the groceries adjudicator must have proper teeth. I mean, it's ridiculous having an adjudicator that just looks at the the last link in the supply chain between the the, uh, the supermarket and, and the the processor. Um, the, the, the adjudicator must must be able to look at the whole supply chain and ensure that the the farmer is getting a fair share of the of the value chain. Um, I mean, uh, so I mean that's one example of uh, you know something that could be done. Um, and I think I think farmers also um, need to look at what happened in New Zealand. You talk there about making sure that farms have power, though, but in effect, if these assurance schemes were to be responsible for um, managing subsidy, what you'd be doing is making them, in effect, mandatory if people want to access that subsidy. Um, is that giving power to farmers? Because some would say, well, I, I would like the power to be able to sell my stock non-assured. Well, I think that you might find that, that there are that there are ways of doing that. But I mean, but but I mean, what everybody's arguing about at the moment is is the same thing, really. Is is um, the fact that um, you can't get any any you won't be able to access any any subsidy without um, without you know signing up to certain um, to doing certain things. So so everybody's going to have to do it anyway under what's being proposed. Um, and I think uh, I think some of these assurance schemes. I mean, you know, they are they, they should have farmer farmer boards uh, as far as possible. Um, and uh, you know, I think I think it's it, you know, it's sort of it uh, is actually empowering the the farming uh, various 
sectors of the farming industry to, um, to uh, generate really strong brands backed backed partly by government because because there would be there would be a, a some form of subsidy. You know, I think it does empower, it perhaps doesn't empower individual farmers, but it but it, it does empower the farming industries as opposed to us just being really the sort of lackeys of of, uh, of government um, and uh, and and to, to Whitehall where where very often there is a quite a high level of ignorance I think. There are a growing number of farmers though who think that they're just lackeys for assurance schemes. Do you think there would need to be some significant reform of these schemes before they were allowed to take control of, of subsidy? Uh, yeah, yes, I mean, I, I, they wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not saying that the, that um, you would just have the existing assurance schemes. I've no doubt that they they can be improved upon. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm sure I probably um, <clears throat> a lot of farmers would vehemently disagree with me because I I, I uh, you know I'd, um, I'm sort of conservationist and I, I take a, a fairly uh, intolerant uh, view of. Uh, of some of some farming practices that that, that um, other people would would think are, are normal and, and, and essential. I think if we are there is absolutely no point in us going to head to head with you know feedlot beef, for example, from um, Brazil or Texas or wherever. Uh, if we if we are going to uh, prosper in in world markets, we we need, we need to turn our turn our feed into into premium products and sell it that way um, and differentiate ourselves you know and uh, from um you know sort of commodity food that's been been produced um as cheaply as possible and i think i think <clears throat> i really think that's the only way we are going to to prosper and i, I and i think a lot of farmers would when they think about it would agree with that so just to return then finally to the um, letter you mentioned at the start that you co-signed with Jeremy Clarkson. If you were in a lift with Renéo Jaudena, the new DEFRA secretary, for five minutes, what top regulations would you tell him need to be scrapped from tomorrow? Well, I think I would, I would, I would just make him acknowledge, um, first, first of all, that um, British... British produce is um, is produced of a very very high standards, which is incredibly costly. I mean, we we have to tag our, our cattle. You know, have to you know have to tag sheep, um, and you know that's a that's a huge cost. It's actually also quite a dangerous thing for stockmen to do tagging young calves. Um, and you know, he, ha- he has to acknowledge that. Um, it's not a level playing field and therefore either we have to um, get rid of some of these things and I think a lot of the regulation came in on the back of BSE foot and mouth um, and may not may not actually be necessary or if it is necessary you know we should be we should be paid a subsidy for continuing to do it give me an example of, of um, where I could cut out waste and cut regulations I, w- I would just say well actually Minister, I think I would I would actually just scrap your the whole your, pretty much the whole of your department because um, they are duplicating what um, a lot of uh, you know these insurance schemes are having to do anyway. 
That's it for this special episode of Over the Farm Gate. If you've enjoyed listening, please rate and review the podcast on your preferred platform so we can help attract new listeners. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. Thank you.